You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, as mentioned a little bit earlier, we're going to be going into uh, talking about today the qualifications for, for elders and deacons or overseers and deacons or pastors and deacons, uh, those three being the same. Um, and just as a, a, a reminder, as we, we look at the qualifications for, for both pastors and deacons today, uh, not counting the qualification of gifting for the pastor, which would be uh, able to teach, that all of these qualifications are, are, are not special in the sense that only the people who are occupied in the offices of elder and deacon possess these, these, these character traits. Now, th- these character traits are meant for every Christian. This is what we should strive to, to, how we should strive to live in the grace of God is the qualifications that, that are outlined, especially the char- specifically the character ones. And so, this is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are so thankful that you do not leave us in the dark about what you have determined for your church and specifically today how you have have determined that your church would be, be, be led in these offices of elder and deacon. Lord, I, I ask that today uh, we understand the reality of, um, of your word that tells us that unless you build the house, the laborers labor in vain. Christ Jesus himself said, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Lord, we look to you today to do that, to indeed build your church through your word being preached and proclaimed. Lord, accompany the word preached by a very weak man in the power of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring blessing and health to Grace Church through this, as well as churches that may hear this all over the world. In Christ's name, amen. Reverend Kip Nelson. Reverend Jim Baker. And Deacon Jackson. See if you can identify what these three folks have in common. Reverend Kip Nelson uh, was ordained as a pastor in the United Methodist Church earlier this year. Nelson openly identifies as a homosexual and is a staunch supporter and advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. Reverend Jim Baker, some of you may be familiar with that name, a very famous televangelist who now pastors Morningside Church in uh, Blue Eye, Missouri. It's near Branson. Baker has a, a past that's filled with ministry failures, including marital infidelity, um, fraud, and imprisonment. A few years ago, he and his ministry, in fact, were sued for selling a fake cure for COVID-19, and they settled by paying restitution of $156,000. Deacon Jackson a deacon in his church, very kind and gentle and likable man. He serves his church with zeal, always being first to step in and help when any needs arise within the congregation. But Deacon Jackson's wife is known for being loose-lipped. She frequently gossips about other church members and exaggerates the, the things about them under the guise of Christian concern. What do these three individuals have in common? Well, first, they all occupy an office within the church, either the office of elder or the office of deacon. Second, they fail to meet the qualifications for the office of elder or the office of deacon that are laid out in the scriptures. And third, if they continue in their various roles, they will be like a millstone tied around the church's neck, dragging her down to the depths of unfaithfulness rather than building the church up as the offices of elder and the office of deacon are meant to do and intended to do by Christ. John Thornton, a prominent businessman in the congregation of the famous Anglican pastor Charles Simeon wrote this to exhort Simeon about the seriousness of his role as a pastor. He said this to Simeon. He said, I should recommend you having a watchful eye over yourself. For generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people. What's Simeon saying? Or what's Thornton saying here to Simeon? What he's saying is that, that the character and the beliefs of ministers over time tend to become the character and beliefs of the congregation. Visit the congregation of Kip Nelson and you will ha find a people who have similar beliefs and similar character as he does. You'll find some who are enslaved to sexual sin like him. And you'll find others who have 
are enslaved to twisted thinking about sexuality and gender, just like him. As are the pastors, so goes the church. So are the church. So is the congregation. Hey, visit the congregation of Jim Baker and you'll see something similar. You'll find a people who have similar character and similar beliefs as Jim Baker. You'll find a people who have a sinful lust for money and possessions. As are the pastors, so are so goes the church or so is the church. But it also works the other way around, doesn't it? Thankfully, a congregation with elders and deacons who are above reproach and men of integrity and men of humility and men of biblical fidelity. Over time, what you're going to find. Is that you'll find a congregation that's filled with that same character. See, this is why it's so utterly important that a church is led by men who meet the qualifications for elders and deacons that Christ has laid down in his word. The very beliefs and the very character and the very health of this church and any church is at stake. As I mentioned earlier, we're moving into a season here at Grace Church where we're going to be asking those of you who are members of Grace Church uh, to identify men who you think and you discern actually meet the qualifications for the office of elder or pastor and for the office of deacon. And today we're going to spend some time in First Timothy chapter three, looking a little bit further into those qualifications. The main point I'd like you to take away today is this. Take your role as a member of Christ's church seriously. By nominating men who meet the biblical qualifications for the offices of elder and deacon, the church's health is at stake. Now, I've decided to break this sermon today up into two parts. In the first part, what I'd like to do is I'd like to answer some questions, important questions that often arise that pertain to elders and deacons. And then in the second part, we're going to run through the qualifications for the office of elder and the office of deacon. And so let's start with those questions. Let's ask the first question. Why do we appoint elders and deacons? Why do we do that here at Grace Church? Well, is it because we just think it's a good idea and it's practical? Is it because that that we 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 see that it's just been done that way for almost 2000 years and so we're just following suit? Well, it is a good idea and it certainly is practical and the church certainly does have a tradition of appointing elders that dates back all the way to the first century church. But that's not why we do it. We do it because in his infinite wisdom, Christ has ordained that his church be led by qualified pastors and qualified deacons. Read through the book of Acts and and you'll see this pattern. You'll see a familiar pattern that Paul and his team, they go out, they preach the gospel in places where Christ is not known. All of a sudden people are converted. They're gathered into into churches And after they're gathered into churches, they're organized under the leadership of elders. You can see that pretty clearly in Acts chapter 14. After Paul has preached the gospel in various places on his first missionary journey and people were converted and they're gathered into churches. It says, starting in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, that was Derb, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, you see that when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
So we see that biblical precedent there for for appointing elders in churches. We'll also see that biblical precedent of deacons, or at least proto-deacons, being appointed in Acts chapter 6. You may remember the problem that had arose in the in the early church there in Jerusalem, that there was a food distribution issue to to some of the widows. They weren't they were being passed over in the food distribution. And so the apostles who were occupying the role of pastors in, in that church at that time asked the church to choose seven men to oversee the enormous task of that food distribution issue. And so the church chose seven men And the apostles prayed and laid their hands on these men and commissioned them to their diaconal ministry. And so we have this biblical precedent of appointing elders and appointing deacons. And if that weren't enough, we have the clear instruction to do so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, like we're looking at today, as well as in Titus chapter 1. You'll see the qualifications for elders there as well. Second important question. Maybe some of you are asking this. Why are we asking you to identify men for the office of pastor when we already have Jeff as our pastor? For those of you who haven't been here very long, it may surprise you to find out that Jeff is one of five pastors here at Grace Church. Uh, Mike and Sam and Brian and myself being the other four. And some of you, if you're like me, maybe you come from a church tradition that uh, have always had one pastor and several deacons. Or maybe you come from a church tradition that's had a lead pastor and then an associate pastor, right? Maybe it seems kind of odd to you that that's not the case here. Well, let's ask a question. Why do we have multiple pastors? Well, because the scriptures clearly teach that a church should strive to have multiple pastors. We've already seen in Acts chapter 14 when it's when it's we already as we've already seen in Acts chapter 14, it says this. And when they had appointed elders That's plural. That means more than one. When they had appointed elders for them in every church. Singular. Multiple elders. One church. We see this pattern in several places in the scripture. Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter one. Hey, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained in order. And appoint elders. Plural. In every town. Singular. As I directed you see that multiple elders, one town, one church. That's why we were asking you to identify more men who meet the biblical qualifications for the office of pastor, because it's biblical, because it's biblical. Third important question. What's the difference between the duties of elders and the duties of deacons? Now, I don't want to get caught up here because we could spend an entire sermon on just this question. But I do want to lay out the fundamental difference between the duties of elders and the duties of deacons. And I think we can see that clearly in Acts chapter 6 and what the apostles say in response to that food distribution issue that we were talking about earlier. Starting in verse 2, it says this. And the twelve, speaking of the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, by devoting our time and our energy to serve tables, we would be neglecting our primary duty of ministering the word. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. That means they're qualified. Whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I think a 
article from Nine Marks says it nicely. It says this, that the biblical role of deacons is to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the church so that the elders can concentrate on their primary calling, which can be summed up under that broad categories of word ministry and prayer. To put it another way, the primary duty of deacons is to attend to the practical needs of the church so that the elders can attend to the spiritual needs of the church. And there is certainly some overlap there. You may be shocked to find this out. But the chairs you're sitting in this morning, they didn't organize themselves into rows. It's shocking, isn't it? If you're watching us on live stream today, that camera that's pointing towards me, it didn't just pop on this morning by itself. The finances don't keep track of themselves. The work days where lawns are mowed and trees are trimmed and people's houses are moved from one location to another. They don't organize themselves. You look, I know I'm being silly, but look. These are just some examples of the practical needs of the church that our deacons oversee. And you know what happens when they oversee those practical needs? That frees up the elders to do what they are called to do. Their primary do ministry of the word and prayer. It doesn't mean that, by the way, the deacons do all the work in those instances, but they they take charge of those things to make sure that they get done. Let me just say this, church, you do a great job at this, but let me exhort you to do it more and more. Honor your deacons. Whatever you think that they do, they do 75% more than that. They, do, they are working behind the scenes all the time, serving, serving, serving. We have got some amazing deacons at this church. Encourage you to, to let them know that. Fourth important question. Can a female occupy the office of elder or deacon? Now, I know that this is a loaded question in today's world. And I know that there are maybe even people here who are going to disagree in regard to this. But I want us to I want us to hit this head on today because it is so important. Either Christ has ordained that men lead the church by his pastors and deacons or he's not. And we need to be sure that we let him speak. We need to be sure that we let Christ be Christ over his church. And so I want to handle this question, understanding that there may be difference. I want to handle it with the utmost care. And so let me first acknowledge a couple of of things that are true. First, women have been the recipients of, of much cruelty and much discrimination and much oppression since the fall of Adam in the garden. It's true. Under the hand of wicked men, women have been devalued and demoralized and in some cases uh, downgraded as if they were subhuman. And one glaring example of that in our day is is if you look for some, some of the lives of women and young girls in some places in the Middle East. You've probably heard some of the stories coming out of the Israel Hezbollah situation. And I just want to be clear. That any true devaluing or any true oppression of women, it's evil. It's wrong. It dishonors God. It is not something that is, is, is just neutral in his sight. Women and men are both created in the image of God. They both are created with dignity, worth, and value equally in the image of God. But they do have different roles that God has assigned to them. Second thing I want to acknowledge this morning is that the world's attempts... To try to right these wrongs inevitably end up distorting God's diverse design for males and females. Okay, ideologies like feminism, as an example, seek to solve the problem of 
female discrimination by either eradicating the distinction of the roles assigned to men and women or flipping those roles upside down so that women do what men were designed to do and men do what women were designed to do. One example of this can see can be seen in marriage. For the feminist, the thought that the husband would be the head of the household, that the husband would be responsible to lead his wife and his family is disgusting to the feminist. The woman, in their view, the woman must not submit to such antiquated thinking. She must shake the shackles of male dominance off. If anyone's going to lead in the marriage, it must be her. And then there is no room for a marriage to function the way that God designed it to be functioned. That the loving, godly, sacrificial leadership of the husband for the good of his wife and for the glory of God. And the wife's loving, godly, reverent submission to her husband out of love for Christ. See, to the feminist, that would be given in to, to female discrimination or female oppression. This morning you might be thinking, what does this have to do with whether or not women can be elders or deacons? A lot. Because this kind of thinking has infiltrated the church. Not speaking necessarily of grace church, but churches all over the world. And, and when that happens, any role that's exclusive to males or reserved for males, it's automatically deemed in their eyes as if it's female oppression when it's not. And any, any supposed right, uh, any, any attempt to right that supposed wrong, that hey, there shouldn't be just men able to occupy the office of pastor as an example, there's a lot of interpretive gymnastics that are done with God's word to try to legitimize having women occupy the offices of elder or deacon. I remember a young lady I worked with several years ago who was explaining to me why she believed that women could occupy the office of elder pastor. And she began to describe in detail what was going on in the church in Ephesus that spurred Paul to write the words, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And for what I can recall, her, her, her interpretation boiled down to this. That Paul's words were intended for that particular congregation in that particular time because of things that were going on in the context at that church during that time. But it's not intended for the church today. You may have heard others interpret this verse in a similar way as, as it just, hey, this is just a cultural thing. That's why Paul gave this, this instruction, because it was a cultural, contextual thing, and this is what was going on. But let me just say this. Let's, let's use our brains here, because we care what God says about this. We have to ask the question, or we have to think, listen, if that was the case, you would expect Paul to offer a cultural reason for giving that instruction. Let me give you an example of a cultural reason that he might give for that instruction. Hey, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because in this culture, women who have authority over men are typically priestesses at the temple of the false god Artemis. And we don't want to give the impression that Christianity is anything like idol worship. See, that would be a cultural reason. But that's not the reason he gave, is it? The reason he gives is not a cultural one. The reason he gives is a creation one. Look what he says. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Reason. Here's the why. For Adam was formed first. 
then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see what Paul's doing? He's, he's grounding his instruction that women should not be elders in the church first by pointing to God's created order. Adam was formed first and then Eve. God had a design and a reason for that. And second, he's pointing to the tragedy that took place when the, that order was subverted in the fall. When Eve acted as, as the head of the household and Adam sub, evaded his God-given responsibility to lead as the head of the household. And the results were tragic, as we all know, as both ate the forbidden fruit and plunged all of humanity into sin and misery. Listen, Paul is, is saying that God's created order not only applies to the household of all humanity, or the household of the family, but also to the household of God, the church. Just as, as men are charged with leading and providing for and caring for and protecting their families. So qualified men in these offices of the church are charged with leading and providing for and caring for and protecting the family of God, the bride of Christ, the church. And if this order is subverted, listen, it will not be, it will not be backed by the blessing of God. God blesses us when we follow his word. See, there's a reason why Jesus appointed 12 men to be his apostles. There's a reason by, why the, the apostles instructed the church to choose seven men to be deacons. It's because God has purposed that men lead his church. And we will see as we go through the qualifications for elders and deacons today that in these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, they leave no room for us to think otherwise. You may recognize the reality that the world is full of churches with leadership structures that look very differently than what we've just talked about. Why is that the case? Well, maybe it's ignorance. Maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's the world's false ideas creeping in the church. But whatever it is, it's not grounded in the word of God. So let that serve as a warning to us. As we look at these, let's let God be God over his household. Let's let Christ be the king over his church and tell us how he wants us to, to operate and to live and he has made it quite clear of how the household is to be run by, by qualified elders and deacons. And to those qualifications, we shall now turn. So what kind of men should you be looking for as we ask you to nominate individuals for the office of elder and the office of deacon? First, let me just go ahead and say that the qualifications, uh, when we take a look at the qualifications in the first seven verses of, of chapter three for elders, we're not going to exhaust any of these qualifications. We're going to touch on each of them briefly and uh, and then we can we can talk about them maybe in a little bit more um, depth if you'd like to after the service. Love to be able to do that. But look at verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What is an overseer? Well, well, an overseer is an elder. An overseer is a shepherd or pastor. That's all referring to the same office, elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor. You can see those three words as clearly referring to the same office in first Peter chapter five. So I exhort the elders among you, Peter says. So Peter's talking to the elders of the church as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Listen, to what he says shepherd or pastor 
the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, overseers, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. See, these three words, overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor, they 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 emphasize different functions of the same office or different parts of the same office. The overseer emphasizes the function of the office where it's he gives oversight and supervision of the congregation. The word elder, that emphasizes the character of the person, just like as an elder, we, we think of an elder as someone who's older, more mature. So so it is in the church. An elder is someone who is spiritually mature. And shepherd pastor, that that emphasizes uh, the attitude. He has a caring heart like a shepherd for his sheep. He cares for them so much that he he wants to 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 discipline when they need discipline. He wants to speak truth when they need to hear truth. He he wants to to guide them with his rod and his staff for their good. Verse one also clues us into two important truths for those of you who think that you might want to be an elder or a pastor. First. That it's not wrong to desire and pursue being an elder. It's not wrong. If, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Listen, if you have that desire, don't suppress it. Don't suppress it. Don't think that it's more humble to not desire it because it's not. In fact, desire is a part of God's calling. If you don't have that piece of it, then you don't need to be an elder, even if you met all the other qualifications. Verse uh, in verse one, also, the second thing I want you to see is it shows us that being elder an elder is work. It's work. It is a noble task. But make no mistake, it is a task. It is work. It is labor. It's not all baptisms and baby dedications. It's it's preaching. If you're preaching and teaching, it's labor in the word. It's leadership meetings. It's ministering in homes. It's counseling. If you're called to these things, it's going to be labor, but it's going to be labor and joy. And just know that And as we move into verses two through seven, I want you to notice how important character is in the life of an elder. Again, these are things that every Christian should aspire to the things we're going to be going over. Look at verse two, therefore, an elder elder must or I'm sorry, an overseer must be above reproach. That must be, by the way, is in present tense. That means this is what he is now. I promise you. That if the qualification for elders has, has, it would be that you always had to be above reproach, you would have no elders in this church. Nor in any other church for that matter. Above reproach, what does that mean? Or blameless. It's, it's this general category that every other characteristic that Paul's going to be laying out, it, it falls under this category of being above reproach. And please know, as I've already alluded to, it, it doesn't mean that Elders are perfect in every single one of these things. We're not glorified yet. Again, we would be an elderless church if it meant perfection in all those categories. But what it does mean is that there is a, an, a consistency or a pattern in the man's walk. He can be truly, he can't be truly accused of any ongoing habitual sins or breaking of these character traits. Still in verse 2, the husband of one wife, literally a one woman man. This doesn't mean the elder must be married. But what it does mean is that if he is married, he's deeply devoted to his wife. He's sexually pure. He doesn't look at pornography. He has eyes only for his wife. Remember, 
This is now. This is in the present. He's a one-woman man. That doesn't mean or necessarily disqualify a man if, if 20 years ago he was divorced. But now, if he, he's had that long track record of devotion to his wife or devotion to purity, he could still be qualified for that. I, can't, I just can't express how important this one qualification is. See, many a church has been devastated by pastors who were not a one-woman man. Even in this town of Swansburg, North Carolina, and I know people who are still messed up by it. So if you struggle with that, please do not enter into any office in the church. Sober-minded or, or temperate. This refers to someone who is restrained. He has a halter on himself. He restrains himself from indulging in sin. and He's not given to excess. He leads a balanced life. A moderate life. He's self-controlled. That flows out of being temperate. He thinks before he speaks and acts. He's, he's under control, which, by the way, is a fruit of the what? Fruit of the Spirit. He's thoughtful. He's decent. He's wise. You want a recipe for how to destroy a church? I'll give you one. Put a man who is not self-controlled in leadership. It will create one of the most toxic environments imaginable as he's driven by his flesh. You can see a lot of this going on if you've heard of any of churches and pastors and things blowing up at churches over the past year or two. Let me just state the obvious. Uh, we don't want any clones of the famous basketball coach Bobby Knight who just passed away. If you know anything about him when he was coaching, I'm not saying anything about the rest of his life. But he wasn't known for self-control. He was known for throwing chairs on the court. Respectable. He lives in a way that's befitting of a follower of Christ. He's honorable. He's modest. He's orderly. He's well-behaved. He's virtuous. He has dignity and the respect of his peers. Look for guys that are hospitable, open and loving to others. He must be a man who loves strangers and is willing to have others in his home. He's willing to sacrifice himself like the good Samaritan did in order to care for those who are in need. The next is a very important one. This is the main qualification that differs from elders and deacons. Able to teach. The elder must be able to teach. An elder must be skilled in teaching. He must accurately communicate the truth of God's word. And Paul adds in Titus, he must, must be doctrinally sound. Here's what he says in verse 9. He must hold firmly or firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he's got to know the word of God and teach the word of God accurately. Notice something, though. I want you to see this. It does not say that he must be able to preach. This may be a new new to some of you who come from church backgrounds where pastors preach. And if they can't preach, then they're not pastors. But if we look a little further in Paul's letter to Timothy, we can see that there is a distinction in the office of pastor or office of elder. Elders whose primary responsibility is to is to participate in governing and and leading the church. And those whose primary responsibility is to govern the church and preach and teach. First Timothy 5.17, here it is. Let the elders who rule or govern well be considered worthy of double honor. 
And here's the distinction. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So all elders have the responsibility to govern the church, but only some labor in preaching and teaching. Why is that important to understand? Well, it's important for you to understand today because when you are identifying men, as we're asking you for nominations for, the, for, for men who meet the qualifications for elder, you should not discount someone who has never been up here to preach on a Sunday morning. Don't discount them. If you've seen their teaching gifts and you can see that they're able to teach, they might be able to be one in whom the Lord is calling to be an elder and to govern the church. Not a drunkard. He's not controlled or dominated by wine or other strong drink. It doesn't mean that he cannot drink alcohol. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that he doesn't drink alcohol in excess. He's not one known, known to be one who gets tipsy. He's not violent. The New American Standard says it this way. He's not pugnacious. Literally, that's a giver of blows. He isn't quick to respond with violence. And he isn't abusive. He hasn't given anyone a black eye in the past few years or punched a hole through the wall in anger. He isn't known to blow his gasket when he doesn't get his way. Gentle. That's the opposite of violent. He holds his strength under control and easily pardons human failure for bearing with those who do him wrong. He's not quarrelsome. Can't be quarrelsome. He's not known to love arguing or picking fights. He's not quick to enter into a dispute of, over words, but promotes peace. He's not a lover of money. He's not the guy who always wants to talk about money and, and the pursuit of wealth. You know, this disqualifies, this, this particular qualification disqualifies every prosperity gospel preacher out there. He's not greedy. Money's not his motivation. God's glory is. He's content with what God has given him, whether he has very much or very little. How about this? He must manage or rule his own household well. See, one evidence of this is that if he has any children, they are respectfully submissive to him. Now, age matters in that. Two-year-olds are sometimes difficult. Okay? I was preaching one time and my, my, my girl, some of you remember this, my little girl had and she just, whew, I had to stop. I had to stop. I'm having to stop right now because I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Why is that important that, that he must manage and rule his household well? Because in verse 5, Paul says if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. In, in other words... If he can't manage the few people in his own household, how could he possibly manage the many people in God's household? Next, not a new convert. He must not be a new believer. He must be mature in the faith. Why? Paul says because he may become puffed up with conceit. That's pride. And fall into the condemnation of the devil. You see, pride is a real temptation when you place a new believer in, in a position of authority in the church. It's like placing a hormonal 14-year-old in charge of your entire household. And that's no offense to hormonal 14-year-olds. I was once one. Most people in here were once one. They tend to think, I know I did, they tend to think they know more about life than they actually do. In the same way, a new convert is prone to think that they have more spiritual insight than they actually do. More time on 
walking on the narrow road that leads to life than they actually do. More knowledge of God's will in the Bible than they actually do. And such pride is a recipe for disaster in the church. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs says, and a haughty spirit before a fall. How about this one? Well thought of by outsiders. He must be one who unbelievers respect, even if they don't agree with him. See, an unbeliever can look at this man's life and they can see how he lives his life. He's a man of integrity, a man of discipline, a man of conviction, a man who can be trusted. That's why Paul adds in Titus that this elder must be upright, holy and disciplined. Why? He says that so that he may not fall into disgrace. Into a snare of the devil. In other words, so as not to bring reproach upon the church. See, there's nothing worse than having a, an elder of Christ's church who lives like a wretch or lives like the world before a watching world. Hypocrisy is so evil to, easy to sniff out, especially for unbelievers. See, these are qualifications for elders in Christ's church. These are the qualifications that you should be looking for as you can discern and pray through. Who has God called in this church to be an elder along with our five elders that we have now? Now, let's, let's, let's talk about deacons. What are the qualifications for deacons? And listen, as we begin verse 8, I, I just want you to see... Once again, that for the deacon, just as it is for the elder, that character is king. The character of the person is king. Christ has established a high bar for servants in his household. Not perfect men, but men who are exemplary. And this is going to go a lot quicker since several of the qualifications are the same for elders. And I'll point those out. Not going to spend much time on those. But deacons or diakonos, a person who renders service, a servant. The name adequately describes the function of, of that office. Deacons serve the church by taking care of works of necessity. Like as an example, setting up the chairs, getting the air condition on and heat on and works of mercy, like organizing uh, care for widows would be an example so that the elders are freed up to perform their ministry. Here's what verse eight says. Deacons likewise must be dignified. Dignified, a man of dignity. He must be one who is worthy of respect. He must be one who is esteemed because of his character. He's a godly man. He understands the seriousness of spiritual issues. And he's not flippant about serious matters. Not double-tongued. He must not be one who says one thing and means another. Or says something to one person and, and then something entirely different. To the next person, he must be known, not known to be a gossip or quick to discuss private matters with people. You know, James says that the tongue is like a small fire that can set a forest ablaze. The tongue can burn down a church really quickly. That's why it's important that a man in this position of service has control of that tongue. Next, not addicted to much wine. We've already seen that. Not greedy for dishonest gain. We've already talked about that. But why is that important for a deacon? Well, because as a deacon, he may have uh, contact with finances of the church. And it's important for him to be free from the love of money so that he doesn't end up like Judas. He would dip his hand in the money bag. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Listen. Deacon must have a good grasp of the gospel, just like the elder. And his behavior should be consistent with his profession. Listen, 
He must have a good conscience about the gospel. He must have no reservations about the reality of the bad news that we talked about a little bit earlier in our in our catechism question for this week. He must understand that that he and all humanity are deserving not of blessing from God, but of curse. But of hell. Why? Because we've all broken God's law. We've all sinned against a holy God. We, we've all rebelled against a holy God, not just once, not just twice, but every single day of our lives. Twenty times over this morning already for most of us or more. We've broken the law, the Ten Commandments. It shows us the reality of what God sees in us. If we really examine ourselves, what do we see? We see that we're liars and thieves and adulterers and idolaters. And the wages of sin is not life. The wages of sin is death. God, the graveyard. Do you know why the graveyard is there? Because the wages of sin is death. It's death. Physical death, yes, but also spiritual death in hell forever. And there is nothing that you and I can do to change ourselves. The, the, the deacon must hold that with no reservation. But he also must have no reservations about the good news, about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the eternal son of God became a man. Totally God and totally man in order to rescue his people from their miserable state. In order to rescue them from the, the death that they deserve. You see, we are so desperate for a perfect record of keeping God's law that we haven't kept. And Jesus came to fulfill that in our place. We are so desperate for our enormous and unfathomable sin debt to be paid for. Jesus did all that on the cross as the Lamb of God for his people. The wrath of God poured out on him instead of on us. In hell forever. We are desperate for death to be taken off of us and life to be given to us. And Jesus did that by rising from the dead for his people. An undeniable sign that it's all true. That this isn't fantasy. That this isn't a fairy tale. All of this is not something that that man just you know, wrote down and it's just been passed down. Look, only God can raise a dead man to life. After being dead for three days. Especially a man who said, oh, by the way, I'm going to rise on the third day. God doesn't raise liars. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's proven this gospel is all true. And lastly, the deacon must have no reservation that this doesn't just apply to everyone. This doesn't just automatically apply that Jesus did this and everybody's saved. No, he, he, deacon re, makes no reservation about the response required in order to benefit from what Christ has done for his people. To receive the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. That it requires a man or a woman or a child to repent and trust in Christ. To turn from sin. To turn from unbelief. To turn from those things out of, out of a heart that is hating his sin. Hating that he has offended God. And a heart that determines, is determined by God's grace through the new birth. To turn from all known sin to God in submission to his word. And to trust Jesus Christ in his work alone for salvation, not trusting himself. Listen, if you're here this morning, this is what a deacon has to hold to. But listen, unless you're holding to this too, you're still dead in your sins. 
You're still under the wrath of God. And by God's grace, he has kept you alive up until this point. He doesn't have to keep you alive another minute. But by his grace, you're here this morning. By his grace, you're here hearing a crazy preacher like me preaching the gospel and saying, you must repent and believe to receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. You must receive, you must turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And the moment you do that, you will have everything that you need. You will have the forgiveness of sins. You will have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to you as if you had never sinned before. You will be reconciled to a holy God. and You will be granted a life that you don't deserve, eternal life. Listen, don't neglect such a great salvation. Trust in Christ alone today. He has transformed death for the believer. He has not transformed death for the unbeliever. A deacon must believe and hold this with a clear conscience. Next, blameless. Paul says in verse 10, And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Blameless functions similarly to that idea of being above reproach for elders. It doesn't mean that the deacon's perfect. It means that no one can truly accuse him of failing to meet the character qualifications outlined in these verses. There's no question in anybody's mind that the deacon's not addicted to wine. There's no question in your mind that he's not greedy for dishonest gain and so on. He's blameless. But notice, Paul also says, let them also be tested first. In in other words, there has to be enough time for a church to observe the lives of men who will occupy the office of deacon. If you've been coming to Grace Church for one month, maybe you've been a member for one month, do not be offended that you won't be a deacon this round. We're just following God's word. Instead, dive in and serve like you are a deacon so that the church can see proof of your character and proof that God has called you to indeed to this office of deacon. Next, look at what the qualifications. It says the qualifications are for the deacon's wife if he's married. The their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. In a nutshell, the deacon's wife must be of a similar character to the deacon. She's worthy of respect by the way she lives a godly life. She's not a gossip. She's not quick to talk about other people's business. She's temperate. She's clear headed. She's faithful to the Lord in all things. The husband of one wife, again, a one woman man, same as the elder, manages his children and his household well, again, the same as elders. And then Paul ends this section for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, these are the qualifications that that Christ has given us for the office of elder and the office of deacon. And so what we're going to ask you to do, if you're a member of Grace Church, is to identify men in this congregation that actually meet these qualifications. And a few tips for you. First, as I mentioned earlier, we have a list of of qualifications for each office. There's one under the book rack, I believe, and then there's one over here as well uh, under those clipboards that are hanging on the wall. What we want to encourage you to do is to take those lists home. It's going to lay out the qualifications that we, we went over today. And we want to ask you just to, to take them home. Don't go fast. Read through them. Pray through them. And genuinely seek the Lord to reveal the men 
who he has called to the office of elder and office of deacon to you. Ask him to say, show me these men. Show me these men that meet these qualifications. Second, what I would encourage you to do as you're thinking through this nominating process. Look, go ahead and look around. I don't mean right this second, but look around and see men who are already serving this church and who have been doing so consistently. Who, who do you see teaching that has a gift of teaching, has good character, the character traits laid out in here? Hey, maybe they could be an elder. Who, who do you see serving often? You know, perhaps they, and they have the character. Perhaps they could be a deacon that the Lord is calling. Third, we're going to be receiving nominations over, over the next few weeks. And so be sure to, to complete a nomination form between, between now and then. And um, then once we've received the nominations um, and they meet the, the, the percentage of the amount that they would need to, to meet in order to be qualified as a deacon according to our uh, bylaws. Is that right? Yes, bylaws. Um, then we will interview them as elders. We will interview these men and we will... We will make sure that they're meeting these qualifications as best as we can. And so it doesn't just stop with the nomination. We're going we're gonna to do that. So as we close this morning, what if John Thornton was right? What if generally speaking, so is the minister, as is the minister, so are the people. As the elders are, so are the people. As the deacons, so are the people. Listen, if, we, if that is true, I believe it is, that if we nominate men who meet the qualifications that Christ has laid out for us in his word today, what kind of church can we expect to be in the future? Well, if that's true and we nominate those men, we will grow to be a people who know the word of God better. We will grow to be a people who love Christ more. We will grow to be a people who are above reproach. Who are worthy of respect. Who are people of integrity. Blameless in our character. We will grow to be a people who are temperate and gentle and self-controlled. We'll grow to be a people who actually have control of our tongues. And speak the truth and not gossip. And are pure. In short, we will grow to be a people who look a lot more and more and more like the master of the household of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let me urge you, church, take your role as a member of Christ's church seriously by nominating men who meet the biblical qualifications for the office of elder and deacon because the church's health is indeed at stake. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It is a lamp to our path, a light to our feet. We don't have to live in darkness and guess what you have ordained for your church, how your church is to be led. You've laid it out clearly in your word. We've seen today the reality that you've called us to, to be a people of, that are led by multiple elders, a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons. You've been so gracious to show us the duties, the differences, how the deacons serve with the practical and logistical needs of the church and free up the, the elders to, to be able to focus on word ministry and prayer. Lord, you've, you've shown us 
the specific character qualifications and the specific giftings for elders to be able to teach. And so, Lord, we commit this to you. If you have men that you've called to the office of elder in this congregation that are not already serving as elders, Lord, will you make that clear to to us as, as the people of Grace Church? And if there are men who you've called to be deacons, Lord, let make that clear. Lord, grant us grace to take it seriously. Grant us grace to actually recognize the reality that indeed the church's health is at stake. Lord, keep us from wolves in sheep's clothes that would seek to destroy Grace Church, that would seek to rip it down, that would seek to be like that millstone tied around the church's neck and dragging her to unfaithfulness. So, Lord, we look to you, the one who has promised to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, build your church toward toward this, this peace, Lord, of nominating elders and deacons. It's in Christ's name we pray.